0: This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you are listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting, different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome, folks. Dr. Charles Parker here one more time. Really appreciate your coming out this afternoon to be with us. Uh, this is going to be a very, very interesting conversation here with. A very, very interesting guy. It's a real privilege here at Core Brain Journal to pull together a scientist like uh, Dr. Lawrence Afrin. So I'm going to do a brief introduction. Welcome aboard, Dr. Afrin. We're really pleased to have you.
1: Thank you, Dr. Parker.
0: So I'm going to read an intro that was from your book. It's a great book, and we're going to talk more about the book before the. Interview is over, but uh, this is from Dr. Gerhard Molderings uh, at the University Hospital of Bonn, Germany. A professor in pharmacology and toxicology, toxicology, a molecular geneticist, and a mass cell immunologist. Immunologist, if I can spit the words out. Uh, Dr. Molderings said this is a long overdue book, competently written by one of the worldwide leading hematologists in the field of systemic mast cell diseases. In addition to the current state of knowledge about systemic mast cell activation disease, the author vividly illustrates a selection of possible clinical phenotypes of this disease by means of patient cases emphasizing the many pitfalls in diagnosis and therapy, which we do see. The book is an absolute must for all physicians, I completely agree with that. The frequency of systemic mast cell activation disease in the population amounts to about 10% and certainly affected patients are gonna be interested in it as well. The title of the book is Never Bet Against Occam, Mast Cell Activation Disease and the Modern Epidemics of Chronic Illness and Medical Complexity. The final note is, the author's brilliant style of writing makes reading a pleasure. I quite agree. It's just so interesting. I love I love the way you write. Thank you so much for uh, the book, and thank you for your information. The way I uh, connected with Dr. Afrin was we shared a patient, and uh, he wrote a report which was exemplary. I mean, nothing less than exemplary, and I, I said, oh my gosh, I've just got to meet this guy one day and talk to him because it's... Uh, so helpful and so useful, and he did just a fantastic job with the person that we worked together with. So give us a little bit of a uh, personal note about you, if you will, Dr. Afford, how you made the transformation to go down this path. What took you down this path?
1: Well, Dr. Parker, uh, uh, first of all, thank you for the, the kind words. Um, honestly, it was just pure serendipity. Um, uh, my position, um, in my division, uh, had turned, um, to hematology, more of a hematology focus and an oncology focus for a number of years. And, uh, because I was just about the only person in the division who did not have a sub-sub-specialty focus, um, I was... I don't know. Call it the dumping ground for the mystery cases, if you will. Um, and I, uh, you know, had a patient uh, come to me one day. Um, kind of unusual in that she was self-referred. I see those sorts of patients all the time now, but back at um, at that time, that was kind of unusual. Um and um, it was a, an odd case right from the the get-go, um, a woman who had been um, diagnosed with polycythemia vera and had been treated as such, but instead of getting better, she was only getting worse. and she had been requesting uh, uh, from her local hematologist uh, to be referred for a, a second opinion and, he was insistent that um, there was no need for such. The right diagnosis had been made, the right treatment was being applied. Um, in fact, when she was not getting better with initial treatment, he just doubled down and, and increased the intensity of the phlebotomies and she just kept getting
0: mm.
1: worse instead of uh, better. And you would like to think that if you have the right diagnosis and you're applying the right treatment, the patient ought to get better. Um, so. Uh I, you know, took a look at the records and uh, listened to what she was telling me. And it really only took a, a minute or two to realize she couldn't possibly have uh, polycythemia vera. Now, you have to understand uh, she had been diagnosed back in the era uh, about a year or two before we had the JAK2 mutation analysis that made it very clear whether you have uh, P vera or not. Uh, so she had not had that test done but nevertheless it was pretty clear from her history and from the tests that have been run that she couldn't possibly have P vera so then the question became what do you have that could not only cause um, an elevated uh, you know hemoglobin uh, but also the 57 other um, symptoms and problems you have that can't possibly be accounted for by uh, PV, polycythemia vera. Mm -hmm. And that sent me off on quite the quest to understand what was going on in her. I kept telling her, you can't have anything new. There are no new diseases under the sun, (laughs) uh, with the rare exception, of course, of truly new infectious diseases. uh but uh other otherwise every way the human body can go awry it's been seen it's been written about in a journal somewhere or in a textbook we may not understand what causes it or or how to treat it but it's been seen so uh you know i just kept thinking and looking and reading and uh, actually right from the very first visit uh, there were some features of the presentation that kind of smelled if you will like mastocytosis and some of the early testing I did was in that direction and everything I did uh, looking for mastocytosis kept coming up negative. I kept um, looking in other directions that were just not panning out, talking with my colleagues, Uh, nobody had any better ideas, and as the months went on, um, it just kept smelling more and more like misbehaving mast cells, and I began reading more about mast cell biology and disease, and um, if the standard testing was coming up negative, what else could I do to try to find this obviously atypical mastocytosis, if that's what it was. And I learned some other tests, uh, esoteric tests that I had never heard of before, and began pursuing it. I made just about every mistake possible in um, obtaining these um, technically challenging tests, and we had to repeat them a a few times, but finally we reached a point where I got back a positive result, and I said maybe I'm really on the right track. Uh, but of course, to diagnose mastocytosis, you have to have a tissue biopsy showing mastocytosis, and all I had at that point uh, was an elevated mast cell mediator level, um, a urinary prostaglandin D2 level, and so. Um, I figured if it's not in the bone marrow and I had already looked in the bone marrow, it certainly was not there. Um, where else do you go looking for mast cells? And again, the reading tells you where to go looking. And I sent her off to the endoscopist, uh, for upper and lower endoscopy with extensive biopsies. And, um, uh, he, uh, did the procedure and the, um, pathologist called me uh, a week later and um, told me I was completely wrong. These were the most normal biopsies he had ever seen, textbook normal. And I asked him a question I already knew the answer to. I said, did you do uh, the special staining for mast cells that I had talked to you about doing before the procedure? Because I had told him he was going to receive all these biopsies and he had to do the special staining for mast cells. And I knew he hadn't done it because at that time at that institution it took about three weeks to turn around that test, and he had called me after just one week. Yeah. So uh, he fessed up and uh, said, "No, didn't do it." And I said, "Why not?" And he said, "Because I'm telling you, these are the most normal biopsies I've ever seen." Mm-hmm. And I said, "I don't care. It has to be there." Um, you know please do what I asked you to do. We argued for a bit and, you know, we talked about the cost of the test and I said, cost, you, you don't want to know how much money has been spent uh, trying to figure out what's going on here and forget the money. We're talking about uh, a a formerly highly productive uh, woman's life that's just been completely ruined by this disease. There's cost for you. So, You know I've been working on this for months thing is pointing at mast cell disease please go do the staining so he grumbled and okay and I then got a call three weeks later and um, he was literally um, you know stuttering stumbling for his words he said the the routine staining uh, indeed was just as normal as as could be but with the special staining uh, indeed, uh, there was obviously a huge surplus of of mast cells. It still wasn't anywhere close to what you see in mastocytosis, uh, but nevertheless, there was a clear um, substantial increase in mast cells. So, um, I called her back in and I said, "I think what we've got here is an atypical case of mastocytosis." I mean, the the term mast cell activation syndrome hadn't even been invented yet. Mm. And, um, you know, so we talked a good while about how to treat this atypical case for which there was really no good antecedent uh, in the literature. And I eventually just made a decision and um, uh, started her on a medication. She came back uh, uh, a month later. And it was the, the the transformation was just stunning. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, everything was fixed. And, and to be fair, I mean, to date, she remains one of my best responders. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people who respond don't respond as well as she did, but mm-hmm. uh, it was just a stunning transformation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Literally, the day after I saw that improvement, um, I was referred another patient. Uh, I was her sixth consulting hematologist over about a five-year period, and she had exactly the opposite problem. (laughs) She had pure red cell aplasia. Her bone marrow had given up making red blood cells. She was heavily dependent on transfusions, and yet, When I took her history, I realized there were many things going on with her that pure red cell aplasia couldn't possibly account for. So the question again became, what do you have that can not only shut down red blood cell production, but also cause all these other problems? And I had done enough reading at that point on mast cell biology and disease to realize that it was possible that just a different variant of mast cell disease, uh, might be able to do what was happening in her and god knows on her journey uh, she had had every other possible diagnostic consideration for her problems evaluated and ruled out so uh, i pursued uh, testing for mast cell disease and the results came back fairly quickly and i was right on the money and in pretty short, I won't you know bore you with the treatment details. But in pretty short order, uh, we had fixed up her hemoglobin, which was hanging around uh, no around five or six. You know, severe anemia in spite of two to three units of blood being transfused every two to three weeks mm. um, in about oh gosh i think it was about four to six weeks we had our hemoglobin up to 13 um, with mass cell targeted treatment um, and just one more anecdote and then i'll break here um, very shortly after that uh, success I was reconsidering another patient I had been uh, struggling with, another mystery case uh, I had been struggling with for about four years at that point, an unfortunate middle aged woman with um, a disease I had never even heard of in training, uh, but apparently has been in the literature since the 50s, uh, burning mouth syndrome. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had been, you know, re- reasonably healthy until one day in her mid 50s, uh, her mouth, just starts burning out of the blue uh, there was some burning through the rest of her GI tract but the, the problem was you know far dominantly in the mouth and on a pain scale from 0 to ten she was living with 11 out of ten pain every waking moment of every day and uh, after about a year of being evaluated by every specialist uh, imaginable and you can also imagine all the testing and and Uh, scopings and biopsies and whatnot, she had undergone uh, with nothing being found. Eventually, an enterprising endocrinologist found a sky-high chromogranin level and said, oh, you must have a neuroendocrine cancer, and so I'll send you off to oncology. And because, you know, there are relatively few of those cancers, we didn't have any sub-sub-specialists in that area, so she Got sent to the dumping ground for the mystery cases, and um, I walked in the room, and and what struck me—I mean, there's no question she was in a lot of pain uh, from the burning in her mouth, but mm-hmm. you know, somebody who has a neuroendocrine tumor so advanced to be causing a chromogranin level as sky high as she had, you would have expected that patient to look like an advanced cancer patient is expected to look yes and she didn't look anything like that and so it was a real puzzle then as to how she could have such an advanced neuroendocrine cancer and nevertheless I I did what I was trained to do with neuroendocrine cancer I ran every test that you're supposed to run to look for neuroendocrine cancer and every single test came up negative And I called the top five neuroendocrine cancer experts in the country and reviewed the case of them and said, what am I missing? And they unanimously applauded me for, you know, how thorough a workup I had done. And their best thoughts were, it has to be there. The cancer has to be there because there is no other explanation for a chromogram that high. So we just recommend you keep repeating this $20,000 set of tests every six months or so until you find it. And it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but you know, I kept trying to think of other diseases. I kept reading more about chromogranin biology. And you know, long story short, uh, I, after seeing my first two patients with mast cell disease, uh, mast cell activation syndrome, who um, had presented so differently from one another you know that made me aware this can really present uh mass cell disease can really present very heterogeneously and then i uh stumbled across another piece of uh, literature that showed me that um, or another reference online that showed me that uh, the mast cell actually is a potential source of chromogranin and in fact when you don't have Uh, heart or renal failure or proton pump inhibitor use or a neuroendocrine cancer uh, just about the only remaining known source for chromogranin is the mast cell so you know after having figured out my first two patients and then making these connections I went ahead and did the testing in this burning mouth syndrome patient and indeed there it was and I brought her in and I said, I think we've got it. And let me try you on, you know, such and such treatment. And honest to God, in 48 hours, her pain went from 11 out of 10 uh, to one out of 10. Man. Um, it was just amazing. And so from there on, it just sort of started rolling that, you know, I started just, you know, thinking. Uh, you know with these various mystery cases uh, patients with chronic multi-system polymorbidity of a generally inflammatory plus minus allergic theme I said you know is it possible that there might be a mast cell activation disorder here and this was about the time that um You know, uh, uh, the earliest writings in mast cell activation disease were coming into the literature, and the term mast cell activation syndrome was being coined. And uh, bottom line is, the more I began looking for it, the more I began finding it, the more I began finding it, the more I began treating it, and the more I began treating it, the more that these patients who typically had been chronically, mysteriously ill for decades, finally started getting better. Um, you know, my, my record holder to date was, um, um I think a, a woman in her mid seventies who had been chronically ill since, uh, early childhood. Oh my God. And she had never felt well and finally at 75 or so we established the diagnosis put her on relatively simple treatment and for the first time in her life she's feeling well and i can't imagine what it must be you know the, the conflicting emotions there on the one hand you're so happy to be feeling well but on the other hand your whole life is you know most of your life is is past and unrecoverable mm. At that point, I, I can't imagine the emotional conflicts there. But nevertheless, at least we could, you know, bring some wellness uh, to her for whatever time you know she does have left. Uh, so this is how it's just rolled. I started publishing some of my early cases and um, and started you know collaborating with others, including um, uh, Doctor Mulderings, on on some of the research and publications and. And before long, thanks to the internet, um, patients started, uh, my experience has been that thanks to the internet, the patients have been figuring this out, that that they might have a mast cell disorder far before most of their physicians have figured it out.
0: Yes, that's, Uh, yes.
1: So um, now I'm getting a lot of self-referrals and uh, you know, much of the time, uh, you know, it's obviously a biased population I'm seeing now, but nevertheless, it if you've got a chronic multi-system um, uh, polymorbidity with uh, inflammatory components, possibly some allergic components, and, and, and there are other possible components too, then I, I've learned that in those patients, it's reasonable to at least look for mast cell disease. And I was more surprised at the beginning to realize how many patients actually have it. And I'm, I'm less surprised now. It's becoming pretty apparent this is prevalent. And that's part of the difficulty, I think, that many physicians are having With this, as I would have had back in the beginning. You know, we're taught that mast cell disease is, well, you got allergy, of course, but beyond the allergic phenomena, what is the rest of mast cell disease? It's just one disease that we were taught, mastocytosis, which we all know is very rare. And that hasn't changed. But now we're understanding there is this whole new realm. Of mast cell disease, uh, mast cell activation syndrome, and it appears to be far more prevalent than mastocytosis. And it can present in ways that are, you know, quite uh, variant from what we are taught to expect with mastocytosis. So it's just going to take a lot of time and a lot of education for folks to sort of walk the walk that I have serendipitously walked.
0: Well, let's take a moment to embrace this big picture and and try to bring it down to the street level for some of the people who are listening, because it sounds to the average listener, uh, even to a good professional, it's a little bit on the arcane side. It's, But it sounds so scientific, it just kind of zooms over your head. But one of the things that I think is a commonplace finding from my own reading and and from my own limited awareness compared to yours is that the immunity issue is, is a uh, frequent uh, underlying common denominator, isn't it?
1: Well, the immune system uh, is potentially affected in this disease in the same fashion that every system in the body is potentially um, affected by this disease. That certainly doesn't mean that every system will be affected by the disease. Again, it's highly variable from one patient to the next, but you're right, the immune system certainly can be affected by this. The mast cell, of course, is, is an integral part of the immune system, but when the immune system is not working properly, there's a whole range of consequences that can happen that doctors have known about for a very long time, Um, and indeed in various mast cell activation patients, we do see a wide variety of um, immune effects um, among among other problems.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the uh... Uh, more psychiatric, if you will, brain-mind presentations. Uh, One of the things that uh, comes to my attention in in looking for and listening, and one of the things I've been fascinated by so often, is the complaint of uh, brain fog. Now, I I don't see a lot of mast cell activation. I'm not making that point. But brain fog seems so ubiquitous to treatment failure individuals who are coming for second, third, fourth opinions? I'm kind of the same way you are in terms of uh, psychiatric conditions, in that we like the problem of of having a, a, a an apparently untreatable situation. It's it's interesting to me, and I and I think if we just keep digging and looking further, it's one of the reasons we got into uh, referring this individual over to you because uh, there there are some answers if we just keep digging for them. So back to it. So what would you say would be from our listeners or core brain journal listeners? So what would you say about brain fog, headaches, those sorts of things? What could they look for that might be relevant?
1: Sure. Um, well, uh, again, there is no system in the body that is immune, including the immune system, to potentially being affected by uh, uh Aberrant mast cell behavior, mm-hmm. um, and that includes the uh, the neurologic sim, uh, system. So there is a huge spectrum of neurologic, psychiatric—let's let, just call it neuropsychiatric—symptoms uh, and morbidities that can arise from mast cell disease. You know, it's interesting that uh, if you look from you know, the 100,000 foot level at the neuroscience, uh, the human neuroscience literature over the last, oh, I don't know, 15, 20 years, that there's been this developing undercurrent that uh, a large fraction of neuropsychiatric disease bears at least some component of central nervous system inflammation. Yes. And there are there's also developing literature that efforts to treat that inflammation, sometimes just as simply as aspirin, um, can actually be a useful adjuvant treatment in some patients with various neurologic and psychiatric uh, disorders. And yet, for all of the developing appreciation that there is central nervous system inflammation uh, in many of these neuropsychiatric disorders, it has remained quite the mystery as to what the source of that inflammation is. Yes, And I can very well understand why it would make no sense whatsoever to consider mast cells as a potential source of uh, that inflammation on on such a widespread basis, you know, affecting so many different disease processes, when the only mast cell disease you know of is mastocytosis, which is a rare disease. How could it make any sense that mastocytosis could underlie you know, the, the the rare disease of mastocytosis could underlie common diseases like you know depression and anxiety and 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 you know let's say schizophrenia for example. Uh, of course, it makes no sense. But once you begin learning that there is this other realm of mast cell disease, the mast cell activation syndrome, which you really don't have any significant burden of. Mast cell neoplasia, you know, you don't have an excess growth of mast cells to any significant degree. You've just got inappropriate mast cell mediator release, you know, inappropriate activation, and that it's a highly prevalent condition. I think you quoted Dr. Molderings as estimating about 10% of the general population might have um, a mast cell activation syndrome. Well, once you start talking about prevalence numbers that high, then you begin to realize, hey, maybe mass cell activation actually is a component of, you know, some fraction of the patient populations that are suffering these various neuropsychiatric disorders. You know, I, I long ago uh, started wondering. Uh, for example, you 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 know that there are a number of patients who um, uh, frequently develop uh, panic attacks. Uh, they have an, a baseline anxiety disorder, and then they periodically develop panic attacks. They go to the emergency room, and the patients are as befuddled as the doctors because they know they have no reason to have panicked. They can't identify what the source of the panic is. And given that various mast cell mediators um, can set off um, various inflammatory phenomena in the CNS uh, that can produce a picture of anxiety and panic, uh, one has to wonder, yeah, You know, is there some fraction of the idiopathic anxiety slash panic population that might have a mass cell activation syndrome at the root of their problems? And I don't know what the answer to that is. You know, that's research has got to be done. Um, but if you don't even ask the question, yeah, then how are you ever going to get to... The answer. So, sure I I think that we have opportunities here to look at cohorts of patients with, uh, you know, various neuropsychiatric phenomena. We have an opportunity to look at cohorts of patients with say, chronic fatigue syndrome, with fibromyalgia, with irritable bowel syndrome, and honestly, you, you know as well as I do, the list just goes, uh, the list of these chronic, idiopathic, seemingly inflammatory disorders just goes on and on and on and on, and I have no idea what portion of each of these populations actually bears a primary mast cell activation syndrome at, at the root of their problems, but unless we ask the question to begin with and then pursue the necessary research to answer the question in each of these cohorts, uh, each of these disease populations, then you know we'll, we'll never understand uh, just how much of a problem uh, mass cell activation really is.
0: Now, Dr. Afrin, what would you say to a guy like myself who's out here in the street who is not trained in internal medicine hematology as you are, who has a person come in, what would you say to sort of the common, common man uh, physician, psychiatrist, internal medicine, uh, as a, the beginnings of a workup for uh, some preliminary clearing of is this a potential problem?
1: Sure, and and I don't think you have to be a hematologist to um, have a, you know, an especially great appreciation of this. Uh, I mean, hematologists, oncologists were trained on mastocytosis. You know, that's a neoplastic condition, and um, and and we are trained to approach it from that regard, and and that may not necessarily be the best way to approach it, because the fact is that most, mastos, most systemic mastocytosis is indolent systemic mastocytosis, where the dominant problem is not the neoplasia, but rather the inappropriate mast cell activation, so we wind up treating the indolent systemic mastocytosis, much like we treat the mast cell activation syndrome patients. but So so whether you're a hematologist, oncologist, or frankly any other type of doctor, um, I think you have to, um, uh, first of all, take, take a good history. Um, and I realize that's really hard to do. Uh, the whole structure of the healthcare financing system yeah. is uh, orchestrated to... Uh, you know, make a visit as short as possible. And we're talking about a disease that can potentially impact every system in the body, a disease that's probably been present for decades. And unless you get the big picture of what's been going on in the patients, then you're gonna keep focusing on the, the pieces of the puzzle rather than seeing the whole puzzle. So I know it's hard to do, but Uh, You you try to take as complete a history and a review of systems as you can and then just start thinking all over again about what are the diagnostic possibilities that could best explain the entirety of what's going on in the patient and that that harkens back to the title of the book. You, You know, if a patient comes to you with 57 different problems. Is this patient really so uniquely unlucky as to have coincidentally acquired 57 different problems, all of them developing independently of one another, or is it more likely the patient has one thing going on that accounts directly or indirectly for most or all of what has happened in the patient? So obviously it's more likely there's just one thing going on. I think the challenge here is we're going to have to learn that mast cell activation disease really is capable of causing a far wider spectrum of problems, uh, both acute and chronic, than we've ever been trained in the past. So you do a history and uh, a good history and and do a good physical exam, um, long-standing, uh, uh, long-lasting dermatographism. Um, is um, you know not in itself pathognomonic for mast cell disease. Um, there is no one finding on history or physical or labs that will absolutely clinch a diagnosis of mast cell activation syndrome. You have to put the whole package together. But nevertheless, uh, you know if you're seeing uh, you know do a light scratch on the patient's. Uh, uh, back and and if you see some dermatographism, you know flaring up pretty quickly, and then you go back and check it five or ten minutes later, and it's it's still there. That's not normal. It should, and, it should
0: get inflamed when you scratch it and stay there.
1: Not, not not just a light scratch, you know, and and so there there is little other than mast cell activation that can actually cause dermatographism. Uh, so you see a, a, a finding like that, it, it makes you wonder, you know, maybe I should be looking for a mast cell activation syndrome. And So then you get into the testing and it, it is challenging, uh, Dr. Parker. Um, there are more than 200 mediators that the mast cell is known to produce. Um, The vast majority of them, we cannot assay in the clinical laboratory. There are only research laboratory assays for most of them. Um, Of the ones that you can assay in the clinical laboratory, um, most of them are not specific to the mast cell. You know, I I can clinically assay an interleukin-6 level And interleukin-6 is made by um, the mast cell. But lots of other cells make interleukin-6 too. So if I find an elevated interleukin-6 level, that doesn't tell me uh, it's coming from mast cell activation. So in the end, we're left with a pretty small handful of mast cell mediators that um, that, that you can assay in the clinical laboratory and which... Are relatively specific um, to to the mast cell, and those are the ones we go looking for. But it's even a bit more challenging than that. Uh, even if you know the mediators to look for, for example, prostaglandin D two and uh, heparin and, and leukotriene E four and urinary N methylhistamine, and I, I could go on. There there are a few others. But the point is, it, it gets more complicated than that because Uh, Many of these mediators actually are very thermolabile and have very short half-lives. So unless every person in the chain of handling, um, from the patient collecting a 24-hour urine to the lab technician who's drawing the blood, uh, to other technicians uh, behind the scenes who are additionally processing the specimens. If, if everybody doesn't take great care to handle the specimens uh, very carefully, um, keep the right specimens uh, continuously chilled, um, then you know you're you're quickly going to lose what you're looking for, and it gets even harder because some of these uh, assays, uh, in fact, most of these assays, the local lab is not going to run them. Uh, the expertise isn't there. The assays aren't there. The samples are going to have to be sent out to distant reference laboratories. And so you have to make sure the samples are getting, you know, packed properly and, and shipped, um, you know, expeditiously. And um, it's, it's a challenge. There's no question about it. This is part of why it took me about 10 months to figure out my first patient. Mm -hmm. Uh, and yet at the same time I can tell you that if you do put in a little bit of effort to teach the patient and to teach everybody in the chain of handling in the lab about what they've got to do to get this done right then indeed you are able to fairly routinely find uh, evidence of mass cell acti- uh, activation in a patient whose history uh, and exam are consistent with mass cell activation. So, I think it's um, you know helpful to the to the patient and and often to the the local referring physicians as well. It, you know, after so many years of of a diagnostic mystery. Uh, with so many tests, you know, coming back negative, so many tr- empiric treatments proving relatively unhelpful, and finally, you're able to identify, yeah, there there really is a problem here, a definable problem uh, and a treatable problem. Uh, I I think you can accomplish a lot of good there. You know, a lot of these patients, in fact, my experience has been the majority of them, uh, have been labeled by not only some of their doctors, but also uh, sometimes even family and acquaintances as psychosomatic Mm -hmm. Uh, long before we finally established the diagnosis and for many of them, uh, you know, they become tearful just upon receiving the diagnosis because for the first time in decades, they realize they really aren't crazy. Uh, they, 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 they've not been imagining the symptoms. You know, it really bothers them. How, how could it be that I'm making this up, that I'm imagining these symptoms? I, I'm feeling this, this is what I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. And I just don't know. Nobody can help me explain why I'm feeling this way. Well, you know, now we know another disease that might explain, uh, you know, the the mysteries that are going on in some patients. I don't want to make any sweeping generalizations. I want to be very clear that, you know, it's certainly not the case that every patient with a mystery illness. Uh, has a mast cell activation disorder. Uh, All I'm trying to say is that if the nature of the patient's illness fits what we are learning uh, can uh, occur, can develop as a consequence of mast cell activation, then it becomes reasonable to assess the patient for that diagnostic possibility. And if it pans out, fine, you treat it. And if it doesn't, well, you keep on thinking about other possible diagnoses.
0: Well, I think that's really the crux of it, uh, Dr. Affen. I think your uh, uh, admonition to not think about it as absolutely pandemic, but on the other hand, to really take some due diligence to go deeper and uh, really ask the questions. I think the the ticket for that is... uh, it's going to sound a little bit like patently trying to sell your book, which I'm not. I just think that your book is amazing, and I think everybody who's listened to this has gone this far with us down this conversation, absolutely should read your book because it doesn't matter whether the person's a psychiatrist, or suffering from a chronic illness, from you know some other um, subset of, of medicine, uh, they certainly need to be familiar with the book so they can at least uh, do a rule out and consider it. And so. I think that's very, very reasonable and it uh, brings a lot of hope. You're bringing a lot of hope to people and, hey, I saw it with my own eyes with the person that uh, we had as a mutual consultant uh, experience. She, she was significantly better after a very short time uh, following her interview with you almost being completely bedridden for months. So uh, yeah. it can be done if we just ask the right questions and then and, uh, get them the right treatment.
1: I think it is worth noting that, you know, given the extreme heterogeneity with which this apparently presents, and then, you know, we can talk at another time if you want about uh, why that might be, there shouldn't be any surprise that there's extreme heterogeneity in therapeutic responsiveness as well. And even though it's been my experience that most of these patients can eventually find significantly helpful therapy. I think we have to understand that there's a whole spectrum to to this. And, and there are some patients who are so fortunate that they find very helpful therapy very quickly. Mm-hmm. And then there are other patients at the opposite end of the spectrum who are literally trying Uh, so many different medications uh, for such a long time that it's several years before they find uh, truly helpful medication. And similarly on the cost spectrum, there are some patients who find very helpful therapy very cheaply and there are some who find the helpful therapy only once they get to the point of trying extraordinarily expensive drugs. So those are the two ends of the the spectrum and of course the majority of patients are somewhere in the middle. Mm Uh, so I don't want to, you know, uh, give any misimpressions that everybody who gets diagnosed with this is going to find substantial improvement in, you know, just a few weeks or months. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's not, uh, the case. And yet what I've seen is that if both the patient and the treating physician are sufficiently patient and persistent and methodical. In stepping through the trials of the many medications that have been shown helpful in various mast cell activation patients, then it is the case that most of these patients will find will eventually find a significantly helpful therapy.
0: Yes, I think it's uh, a very excellent point of uh, clarification and. And certainly I didn't wish to imply that that uh, that blanket uh, statement, but it was just so inspirational really to see when it does work right, that it's, it's encouraging for listeners who have some, who need some reassurance about where they're gonna go and what they're gonna do, that it's possible at least. So, well listen Dr. Afron. we've uh, went a little over time, but I, I can't tell you how much I've appreciated talking with you and I, and I would look forward to talking with you again. In the future, I think if we could take it to the next step and hone in a little more on uh, some of the multiple presentations that it does have in the office, it might it might open some more doors uh, for speculation and uh, uh, investigation.
1: I I agree. It certainly has opened my eyes.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you very much for taking the time. I really appreciate it, and I I know our audience is going to be very uh, appreciative as well. What I'm going to do is have a book giveaway for your book, and it's going to be at corebrainjournal.com dot forward slash zero two eight download. and if people want to get Dr. Afrin's book, just it'll be open for about two weeks from the time this is published. Dr. Afrin, this won't be up for about a month because we've got some some things in the production queue, but uh, I'll let you know when it comes up so you can be you know forewarned about the publication so. All right. thank you very much. Thank you very much, sir, have a good day. Thanks for listening to CoreBrain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications like those written for ADHD are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.